I would like for you to visit with me to a special spot in uh, the Holy Land called Mount Carmel. And you perhaps have either been there or heard about it. You'll see various perspectives of it as you look to the screens, and I'll share with you a little bit about it. It's just as I mentioned, a mountain range. It's about 13 miles long, and it's quite beautiful. It runs parallel to the Mediterranean Sea. So from its rounded peaks and uh, valleys, uh, on a clear day, you can peer right across into the Mediterranean Sea. It's a very lush area. Uh, it receives lots and lots of rainfall. And sadly, uh, ancient Israel attributed the rain not to the true God, but to Baal, uh, the false Canaanite god. It was thought that he resided here at Mount Carmel. Uh, Carmel, Mount Carmel, is a phrase which you see frequently in many places in the Bible, and in almost all cases, it's used with reference to beauty. So, for instance, uh, King Solomon in the Song of Solomon, praised his beloved with these rather uh, poetic and romantic words. He said to her, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. And I think that's a compliment, uh, actually. We don't speak in those terms anymore, but... Um, that was like whispering sweet nothings in her ear, apparently. She was beautiful, in other words. Uh, it um, is a mountain, but not like a mountain you might see, say, in Colorado or so. At its highest, it's about 1,700 uh, feet. And uh, you can go there today, as many uh, have done and continue to do. It's quite a beautiful place in the northern part of Israel, open to visits. Well, around 850 B.C., Israel had a king named Ahab, and he was a bad guy. And this is not my opinion. This is what it says about him in 1 Kings chapter 16. It says, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, how would you like to be remembered that way? His superlative was that he was worse than anyone who had preceded him. Well, there was someone else of the female variety who wasn't much better, and her name was Jezebel. Jezebel was not an Israelite. Uh, she was the daughter of a Phoenician king of Tyre and Sidon, or Sidon. They would be further north than Mount Carmel in present-day Lebanon. The Phoenicians were a seafaring people, and these two places mentioned in the Bible were on the Mediterranean, northern Mediterranean coast. Well, Jezebel worshipped Baal. He was the chief deity of the Phoenicians. And an arranged marriage between her and the king of Israel was worked out by his dad. Omri set it up. It was a political alliance between the king of Israel and the daughter of the king of Tyre. And that way they would have kind of a peace pact between them. And so this is what happened. And Jezebel, if you know anything about her, let's just say wasn't timid nor passive. She was 
tough to live with. She was extremely strong-willed, and so she insisted that her god, Baal, get at least equal time alongside of Ahab's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so she saw no problem bringing alongside Yahweh Baal. Let's give them, said she, equal time. And Ahab, not exactly a fit spiritual leader, gave in complied. In fact, under her initiative, Baal, the very king of Israel, sought to it that many altars on the uh, Mount of Carmel, which were constructed to honor the true God, were torn down to make way for Jezebel's God. Now, it isn't that King Ahab abandoned Yahweh entirely, he did something almost worse, as did many of the ancient Israelites. They tried to harmonize these competing gods. It was, after all, a very politically uh, correct thing to do. You call him Baal, I call him Yahweh. What's the difference? All roads lead to Rome. You take the high road, I take the low road. What's the difference? As long as you have some God, as long as he makes you happy, as long as you're sincere, as long as you're... As long as you're totally deceived... And so they tried to bring these two gods together, giving them equal time. And the one and only true God was displeased with this. And so in his displeasure, he's merciful, even in his displeasure. And so he sent a messenger to correct, to warn, and to correct Israel. And the messenger's name was Eliyahu Hanovi, Elijah the prophet. God sent Elijah, Eliyahu, with a message. And his very name is all the message Israel should have needed because Eliyahu means Yahweh is God. El is a form of the divine name, Eliyah, Yahweh, Hu. Eliyahu, Yahweh is God. Abandon Israel, your devotion to Baal and any other pretender to the throne. God loves you too much to let you worship non-gods as if they are gods. So Elijah goes to deliver this message. And an incident concerning him is recorded for us in 1 Kings chapter 18. And I'd like to camp out there for a spell. And So if you'd like to help yourself to 1 Kings 18, that would be good if you care to follow along. It's a famous and dramatic incident uh, that you know of, but you may not know, it took place here in the Carmel Mountain Range. We cannot pinpoint with precision where in the Carmel Range it took place, although we have some notions of where it most likely did. At any rate, here somewhere in the Carmel Mountain Range, what we're about to read of took place. So First Kings 18, let's begin in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, remember, Ahab's the wicked king, Elijah, Eliyahu, is God's man, his messenger. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, 
Is it you, you troubler of Israel? You know, it's just rough representing the truths of God. If you think you're going to win a popularity contest in so doing, you'll soon find out you're mistaken. So this is the warm greeting he received from the king of Israel. It's so ironic. Because, in fact, it isn't Elijah who's troubling Israel. It was Ahab who was. And Elijah was sent by a loving God to correct the problem. And so Elijah responds to him in verse 18. He said, I have not troubled Israel. You have and your father's house. Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals, the Baals. Canaanite deities. And so the root cause of the trouble in Israel, do you notice, was not political, it was spiritual. What a parallel with the day in which we live. Don't look for solutions to what ails us in all the wrong places. Uh, The root problem with what's going on in America today is not political, it is spiritual. Because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed non-gods. Folks, as a Christian, I try to be a good steward of the environment which God made, spoke into existence, and has provided for our well-being. I try not to be wasteful and an unbridled consumer of natural, well, they're supernatural resources. On the other hand, I don't want to get so caught up in going green that I miss, no pun intended, the forest for the trees. And today, not only in America, but across the world, we have more people, it seems, who are more interested in going green to save Mother Earth than in going to the cross to be saved by Father God. Don't miss the point. What happened in ancient Israel is happening even in our day. So Elijah says this to the king in verse 19. Send, gather Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 400 50 prophets of Baal, 450 of these guys, priests of Baal. That shows you the enormity of the extent to which ancient Israel had moved away from her devotion to Yahweh in favor of worshiping a false god. She had 450 false ministers leading her in her worship of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. See, Baal was the chief male deity of the Canaanites, and Asherah was the chief female deity. And as it turns out, Baal and Asherah were partners, you see. That's the Canaanite deity. Uh, There's a male and a female, and they got together. And it said all of these eight All these false priests and ministers and stuff ate at Jezebel's table. What does that mean? It means she supported them. That's what it means. It means she was siphoning off the financial reserves of ancient Israel. Taxes were being paid and all the rest. Burdens were put upon the people of ancient Israel. And 
the king of Israel's wife was using monies which should have gone for the upkeep of the infrastructure to support, in this case, 850 bad guys and gal who were leading the people astray. So that's what was going on there. So verse 20, Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Now, why did the king cooperate? Why didn't he object to this? He thought, are you kidding me? Uh, Mount Carmel is the home site of Baal. That's why all the prophets, his prophets were there. It was thought he lived there on Mount Carmel, you see. So Ahab, losing his mind, thought this challenge offered me by Eliyahu, I can surely win because we'll have home court advantage. Baal, that God, lives at Mount Carmel. Folks, what kind of a God is it for you or I to worship and devote ourselves to who is only localized, who lives on Mount Carmel? I would rather worship the true God who is omnipresent, who I don't have to access by going to a building or going to a place because he's omnipresent. <laughs> he's God. So Ahab thought he had an advantage and Eliyahu knew he got nothing. So this is what's going on. You got this challenge. Now verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people. There would be thousands of them now gathering for this great contest, you see, uh, which Eliyahu is proposing at Mount Carmel. So he comes to the people, he said, how long will you go, look, limping between two different opinions? Their political correctness, their spiritual correctness was actually crippling them. They couldn't say some things are true and some things are false. Some things are right and some things are wrong. They couldn't say some named deities are false and only one is true. They couldn't answer the question, do you mean to tell me if one doesn't believe in Jesus, he's not going to heaven, he's going to hell? They couldn't say, yes, you're right. They have to say, I'm not sure. I'll have to let God figure it out. They're limping. You're just crippled, paralyzed in political correctness, trying to be all things to all poles and censuses and Groups of people, instead of just saying, this is right, this is wrong, this is the true God, this is what he said. So look at the analogy. They're limping between two different opinions. Oh, you believe in this? I believe in this. You believe in that? Oh, you like Baal? I like Baal. I like the spelling of his name. Yahweh, he's pretty cool too. It's good to have two because if one's not available, you know, you got an ace in the hole. Limping, limping, limping. Listen, I'd rather be unpopular and right then dead wrong and popular. You just, you just limp between these opinions. You vacillate between the two. And so Eliyahu says, what are you going to do this? Here's the deal. If the Lord is God, if Yahweh is Elohim, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And what did the people do? Nothing. They had nothing to say. He made it clear. Choose. Make a choice. 
You can't have both. So he implores them to make a decision. Look, you know what Jesus said? I am the way. He didn't say I'm one amongst equals. He said make a choice. I am the way. Anybody else is a pretender to the throne. Elijah said stop wavering. They were wavering. How long will you go limping? They were limping. So Elijah said to the people, verse 22, I, only I, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450. So those are not good odds from a human point of view for a contest. 450, you see, to one. So this is what he says, verse 23. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose. You guys, the, the, the followers of Baal, you choose first. Go ahead, you go first. Choose the bull you want. Cut it in pieces. Put it on the wood, but don't set it on fire. Don't offer it in sacrifice yet. Don't kindle a fire. I'll do the same. I'll prepare the other bull. I'll lay it on the wood, but I'll put no fire on it. And then, then, then after you do this, you call upon the name of your God. I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he's God. That's the contest. The people said, it is well spoken. You know what they said? Amen. That's what they said. Deal. They're saying, we got 450 guys. You got you. We got the home card advantage. You got nothing. Deal. So verse 26, they took the bull that was given them. They prepared it. They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they, look, you see the word again, limped. Israel is limping because she can't decide which of two gods is the true God. Uh, uh, the followers of Baal are limping because they're worshiping a false god. Both in the same, they're just limping around. So at noon, now they're going from, for about three hours now, the, follow, the worshipers of Baal. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He did, all right. He said, hey, uh, cry aloud, you know, speak louder, lift your voice. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe he's hard of hearing your God. In fact, he says either he is musing, you know what that means? He's daydreaming. He's musing. He sort of can't hear you cry because he's reflecting, he's distracted by stuff. Or maybe he's relieving himself. I could get in trouble saying that. But God did. See, it's right there in the Bible. So I'm, that is what you called really cool sarcasm. I mean, or he's on a journey. Why do you say that? Well, because the followers of Baal believed he traveled with them when they sailed on the Mediterranean Sea. Maybe he's off on a voyage. Your localized God, who usually hangs out at Mount Carmel, may believe, maybe he's on one of your ships out at sea. He's on a journey. Or maybe he's asleep and must be awakened. So that's what it says. He is really mocking them. And they cry aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. Why'd they do that? Lots of people in ancient days, do you know lots of people do it today? It's a form of worship. Why do you do this bloodletting thing? It's a way to get your gods excited. I'm not kidding you. Religious groupings across the world, then and now, do this. Aren't you glad that the true God doesn't require your blood or mine to get him excited, to get his attention? <gasps> 
Aren't you glad that the only blood acceptable to him is the shed blood of his only begotten son? Oh, my goodness. He wants us to live, not die. So he was willing to let his son die that we might live. What a difference. Well, as midday passed, uh, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That is the afternoon offering that takes place in Jewish circles even today. It's called mincha. It takes place at three in the afternoon. So if they're going from morning until mincha, they're going now about six hours. The prophets of Baal are in this ecstatic, religious, fervor, frenzy, dancing, cutting, screaming. They're going for six hours, but there was no voice, no answer. No one paid attention. So then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been torn down. What a shame, you see. Ahab, because of Jezebel's influence, remember I mentioned, tore down the altar that was supposed to be for the worship of the true God. So Elijah, verse 31, he took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. One stone for each of the tribes. Somehow, the 12 tribes and their identity remains quite important to God down to this very day. And so we know even in the book of Revelation, he knows who belongs to each of the tribes of Israel. We Jews do not know today which tribes we belong to. We lost sight of that, but God has not. So this is kind of important stuff. So 12 stones for each of the tribes. And by the way, Mount Carmel was the tribal allotment given to Asher, Asher. And so with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, verse 32, and he made a trench, he built a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And that's a, a measurement. It, it amounts to 13 quarts. It's a volume of liquid, 13 quarts. So, so here's what he did. He put wood on, in order. He cut the bull in pieces. He laid it on the wood. He said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Look, if you want to light wood, you really want it to be dry. So this is the opposite of what you ought to be doing. And then he said, do it a second time. Douse it with water. And they did it a second He said, do it a third time. And they did. What did he do this for? He wants to demonstrate to all those who are looking, this is no magic trick, nothing up his sleeve. What's going to happen is an evidence of divine intervention by Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true God. Look, the wood is wet. Verse 36, or verse 35, and the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. So at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came here and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. You notice he's not praying for self-aggrandizement, personal ambition. You see, he's praying for the glory of God. Oh, God, hear my prayer that they may see 
you the only true God. Do you notice he's not dancing and prancing, raising his voice, screaming for hours. He's surely not bleeding himself. You know what he's doing? He's a child of the king, and he has bold and confident access to the king, and he's simply praying to the king. What's so remarkable about prayer is that it's so powerful and can be so casual and simple and available and easy if you're a child of the king. You don't have to dance and prance, no dramatics. You don't have to get his attention. Get his, uh, you say, Abba, Daddy, it's me again. I need you again. I'm dependent on you again. Oh. And Abba Father says, it's not again. You can come as often as you want. You don't bother me. I'm glad to hear from you. You don't got to bounce around, limping around, doing all these gyrations. You just talk. So that's what he did. He calls to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, verse 38, fire, the fire of the Lord, fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. Baal, he ain't. No, the Lord, he is God. The true God, not Baal, Yahweh, the true God provided his own fire from on high to burn the sacrifice. And what's more, do you realize that the true God has even provided for us the ultimate sacrifice, the Lord Jesus. No false deity could do that. No sports hero, no entertainer can liberate me from what has me in bondage. Nobody is worthy of receiving the kind of adulation some in our day have received. Only the true God is. He sent fire from on high to consume the sacrifice and... For us, even he has sent the very sacrifice, his own son enfleshed to suffer and die, to provide for the remission of our sins. And that is just how much this God loves us, that he's willing to do what he did. This is just how much, if you're a Christian, the true God loves you. And the true God, think about this, loves you if you are a Christian so much. He's not willing to share you with another. And so that is the life principle I think we could derive from our visit to Mount Carmel. It is this. God loves us too much to share us with another. Isn't that good? Would he really care if he said, have as many partners as you will, it doesn't affect me. Oh, but that's not how he is. He loves us too much. He allowed us to be in a covenant relationship with him. We are wedded to him. He doesn't want us flirting with other partners. He doesn't want other partners to steal our affection because he loves us that much. He's not in part. He's not in pieces. God is absolute, and therefore he wants absolute attention and affection. <gasps> Does this mean he's insecure? No, it means that he's in love. 
He's in love with those who've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Would I offend you if I said to you, God is jealous? I'm not attributing to him the carnal jealousy which characterizes humanity. Listen, it is not that kind of jealousy. When the Bible says God is a jealous God, it does not mean he envies another, wanting what belongs to another. When the Bible says God is a jealous God, it means he only wants what's his. You are, I am, if we've been purchased by the blood of his son. It's not envy. It's not covetousness. It's not indifference. He loves us. We belong to him. He watches how we live. He doesn't want to share us with pretend gods. Isn't that good? How do you feel? Do you think you're special? Good, you are. The valuation by which we were redeemed <laughs> shows me ought to show you what we're worth in the eyes of the Redeemer. He didn't give us inferior goods as the purchase price. He gave us his only begotten son with whom he is well pleased. We dare not leave this place feeling that we're on the outs with God and that he loves all the rest but not me. Why do I emphasize that? I find that Christians enveloped in the atmosphere of God's love do better than those who doubt his love. Somehow it frees you when you breathe in his unconditional love. And somehow you want to glorify him more. You want to live for him more and you want to serve him more because he loves you just the way you are. He's not needy. He's madly in love with you and I. And one of the biggest challenges in the Christian life is to accept it, is to believe it, is to realize he's like a parent, so concerned about the direction and the choices his children make. It's not an anger response. It's not a carnal jealousy it's an unconditional, oftentimes unrequited, unreturned love, which he has for you and I. The most productive and fruitful Christians I know are the Christians who know I am loved. I'm tickled. I'm loved by God. I'm loved by the true God. He sees my flaws. He knows about all my defects. He knows about my nature and all the rest. But he loves me, not what I do. In fact, he's changing me to make me to be daily more and more like him. But he loves me. The Christian who drifts away and becomes enticed by the false gods of the world oftentimes is a Christian who doesn't understand the unmeasurable love of God. You think you have disqualified yourself because you have done that which is wrong. I'm not condoning any misbehavior. I'm just saying that's not the problem, the misbehavior or the sin. The problem is our response to it. Jesus said, I've already cast it behind my back. I've already separated it as far as the east is from 
the West. I do not see you as a worm-like sinner anymore who must plead for my forgiveness. I see you as one who's already been forgiven, as one who's already received a pardon. I see you as my bride. (laughs) And you're not spotless and without wrinkle yet, but you shall be. And I'm preparing a wedding feast for you while you run after other partners in the same fashion in which ancient Israel, God's covenant people, did. You do the same thing. Baal cannot meet your needs. Nobody can meet your needs. Entertainers can only stimulate you and distract you from the harsh realities of your life for a brief time, and then they too die. They can't hear your cry. Are they off musing? Are they on another journey? Do you have to wait to get a ticket to see them? Is that the one you're worshiping? When God says, all you got to do is talk to me, I hear I'm not in any particular place. I'm anywhere you want access to me through my son. God loves us too much to share us with another. I'll tell you what we need in this day. Not more Christians. It's kind of an unusual statement to make. The need is not more Christian. That's the desire. The need is for more Christians to be wholly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. The need is for more sold-out Christians, so enveloped by the love of Jesus Christ, that we just shine for him. We radiate for him. We're not down, we're up. We're not out, we're in. We're not separated, we're reconciled. We're not without hope. We know the God of hope. We're not without comfort. We have the comfort of Almighty God. When you think of Mount Carmel, it means God's vineyard. Carmel, God's vineyard. Uh, When you think about it, it's lushness and it's uh, rainfall and it's vegetation and it's flora and it's trees and it's... uh, Beautiful view of the sea and all the rest. I'd like you to think about the God who's spoken into existence, who put it there for uh, people's enjoyment, and who sees you and I uh, to be the crown of his creation. If he created Mount Carmel with such beauty and investment of his creativeness and artistry, have how much more value are the ones who he made to inhabit the earth which he has which he has made when you think of mount carmel remember this life's lesson god loves me too much to share me with another partner wow i'm so glad that's how much you love me lord jesus we're in good shape in this day Because we're in good hands in this day. The strong and mighty hands of the one true God, yours, uh, which demonstrated yourself so dramatically on Mount Carmel, 
the same hands reaching down from on high have rescued us and say, I will not ever let you go. Oh God, I just so pray that you would fill us uh, with your spirit, that we would so experience the fruit thereof, one of which is love, that we would radiate, oh God, that kind of relationship to those around us to such extent that they're jealous uh, of you, the true God, who so loves us that he will not share us with another. That makes us safe and sound. That makes us feel really, really good. And we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.